Today we are joined by Leila Haddad, author, activist. She co-wrote The Gaza Kitchen with Maggie Schmidt, an award-winning cookbook that takes readers on a culinary adventure of Gaza, delicious recipes, and the stories of a people who are known for their hospitality, culture, resistance, and struggle. Something that Gazans are very well known for, their love for chilies, their love for hot peppers. Yeah, or like jalapenos or like red chili peppers, yes. and they just bite into it in yes, between yes. bites. Eating a full jalapeno pepper is a very alpha move, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to talk about the history of those villages and what happened to them. That was important as well. The food tells a story. We didn't want to divorce the food from the history or the politics. Gazan girl and Gaza mom. Are you pro or anti Bamya? <laughs> oh man, totally oh. pro. Bamya Gate part two, let's go! <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and Mikey Intifada, if you could step away for a minute from burning olive trees to tweet that the IDF is vegan. <laughs> oh my God. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, please subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find all of our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, please reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Today we are joined by Leila Haddad, author, activist, policy analyst, and journalist. She co-wrote The Gaza Kitchen with Maggie Schmidt and award-winning cookbook that takes readers on a culinary adventure of Gaza, the pages of which are layered with delicious recipes and the stories of a people who are known for their hospitality, culture, besieged daily reality, resistance, and struggle. Leila, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you. It's great to be here. You're actually here today to talk about the third edition of your book. I have the second edition. This is what it looks like, the Gaza Kitchen. It's an amazing cookbook. I've been cooking with it now for a little over a year. And it's it's more than a cookbook, actually. What I love about the book is that Obviously, in addition to the recipes, there's also articles. You really get a very deep understanding of what it's like to live and cook in Gaza. I mean, you, you write about contextualizing Gazan food, about the dairy farms in Gaza, about the Taina producers, about organic farms, what it's like to cook and live amidst a 15-year-long siege now. Also, obviously, about cultural appropriation and erasure, which is a subject that we all know about very well. And, of course, on the infamous moment that you spent with Anthony Bourdain in 2013 in Gaza, where you filmed the Parts Unknown episode together. Really enjoyed reading the, the articles that are sort of dispersed throughout but, but also cooking some of the most famous Gazan recipes. So last Eid uh, al-Adha, I made uh, the summa'iya recipe. Without the red tahina, I couldn't find it. But uh, I did like the substitute where you can put yeah. like sesame oil and regular tahina. Let's start with the third edition. Why the third edition? What's different about it? You know, what was missing from the prior editions? And what did you want to bring to the third edition? Yeah, I mean, really, it was a matter of practicality the second edition 
the print was coming to an end. So the, the quantities that the printer had you know, produced were coming to an end. So we were faced with a decision of, do we just request that more copies are printed or do we try to update it? We felt that since I had just been to Gaza just over a year ago, that it made sense maybe to use some of the anecdotes or some of the new information that I collected when I was there to update the book rather than just print the same edition. So really that's why the third edition. And just because, you know, although with Gazette, one feels that you could be writing the same headline th that you wrote 10 years ago today. So in that sense, it's tragic and not much has changed. But on the other hand, the impact of the blockade was really palpable to me when I went in, in, in just sheer you know, in, in terms of the, the, the actual effect on people's everyday lives. So I really wanted that to, to come through. The release of the book happened to coincide with the latest round of assault on Gaza, unfortunately, but it also demonstrated why the book is still relevant. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the new recipes that you were able to add to the third edition? Yeah, definitely. I had the chance to visit Gaza through the World Food Program as a consultant. And, um, you know, we spent several days traveling around Gaza and every time I go I'm just meeting new people that excite me more and their sort of zest and passion for for life and for being from Gaza and for for you know providing for their families always amazes me and we had a chance to visit a small little fish shack in the Shaltet refugee camp Mukhayim Shaltet largely comprised of Palestinian refugees from Yaffa and so it's well known for its seafood and I had heard about this for a long time, but this specific shack is run by a former fisherman. He, he since you know, was detained several times by the Israeli Navy, his, his nets, fishing nets were cut. So he hasn't been able to go out very far anymore into sea, maybe like one or two miles. And he just essentially, whatever he catches that day, um, crabs, you know, uh, sardines, etc. he cooks in this tiny little fish shack. And it's People say that the food is so alarmingly good that he earned the nickname of Ala Ala. So you go to this fish shack and the guy's name is Ala Ala, which means like it's just alarming, you know, <laughs> how good it is. But you have to like, you know, reserve ahead of time and, and so forth. But I had had a few new variations of seafood that I hadn't had before, which was great. It was sort of a butterfly spiced fish with a, you know, nice thick chili marinade and a uh, crab bake, if you will. So we had a recipe where the crabs are, which I grew up with, are stuffed with garlic and chili paste and cumin and then grilled. But he had them in a bake in a tray with this delicious spicy tomato sauce and the other was with a tahina sauce and sesame seeds. So it was fantastic. I'm a huge seafood person, so I just love always exploring new seafood recipes when I go to Gaza, which I know a lot of Palestinians don't have a chance to do just by just by geography, right? Just by the fact that we're forcibly separated from, from our own bodies of water. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that they've given him that nickname. I think Palestinians are really good at giving nicknames that, you know, that are creative and unusual. And I also didn't know that we had crab in our cuisine. It's something I never grew up eating. I, you know, my family's from Gaza, but I, I guess that was probably just because we weren't in Gaza. And, you know, we grew up with some of the, you know, usual suspects, right? But what I've really learned from your book is that there's so many dishes that I didn't even know existed. 
right? And and whether whether because they have sort of developed into the cuisine, you know, in in the last several decades when my family has not been in Gaza, or because of the fact that they really are specific to being in Gaza and topography and the fact that it's on the water and and what you you know the ingredients that you can find there locally. And so for that reason, we just never grew up eating them because, you know, we were diaspora people. Yeah. So I actually grew up in the Gulf. So I was born in Kuwait and largely lived in eastern province of Saudi Arabia. And we would summer in Gaza. But being on the eastern province, we were pretty close, 45 or 15 minutes to the beach. And my dad, having grown up in Gaza in the city, would spend his entire summer vacation camping out on the beach, catching crabs. And we sort of did the same thing, not camping out. But when we were in Saudi Arabia, we would go there every weekend and he loved fishing. So he would take me with him. And, you know, we learned how to catch those the same variety of blue crabs. He is the one who taught me how to cook crabs. That's one of my earliest food memories is, you know, I would catch the crabs at night with a net and a flashlight and he would remove the the shell, clean it out, which is very different than how they prepare crabs here in the US. And actually it's ironic that I live in Maryland because it's a big, you know, crab state. <laughs> so he he would remove the shell, clean it out, and then stuff the crabs with a with a mixture of mashed garlic, lots of garlic, shatta, you know, ground chili fermented chili paste, parsley and cumin. Now my mother, who was from Hanunis, never ate crabs, not even this way, but, but just generally she's grossed out by the idea of crabs, like she was never exposed to them, even though they were a few, you know, miles apart, they grew up a few miles apart. So you're right in the sense that there are a lot of dishes in Gaza that speak to a very unique regional specificity that you don't see elsewhere. And we wanted to capture that in the book. So whereas somebody in Gaza city might be familiar with Sumagiya, as you were mentioning earlier, just a few miles down Deir el-Balah in central Gaza, which largely consists of more, you know, Palestinians with um, either from the eastern parts of, of Gaza, refugees from the eastern villages, would be wholly unfamiliar with Sumagia. And they've said to me frequently, oh, that's a Gaza city thing, right? So, that's amazing. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And I really wanted to capture that. It indicates, you know, we, we talk about how Gaza is a really interesting and unique place to encounter and learn about the histories of Palestinians from a much wider, greater part of Palestine, because 80% of the population are not from Gaza proper itself, right? Yeah, they're refugees. They're from all over Palestine. Right, exactly. And we tried as much as possible to identify where a certain dish was made in a certain village or town. It's kind of an ode or memory of that town. We tried to to indicate that. So I just made the other day a salad that's like dagga, the mashed you know, yeah. tomato, chili salad, but it's a sort of a variation on it where tina is added in cucumbers and it's called salat oh. Beit Jirja. Yeah, and it's from, and everybody from the town of Beit Jirja, which is northeast of modern day Gaza, makes it that way. And it's called salat Beit Jirja, right? Wow. And then you go you go a few miles or kilometers, as it were, you know, east and you, you run into the town of, of Hamama and then there they might add, you know, green onions and something else, you know, um, parsley instead of dill, for example. So we tried to capture all of those variations and then, and then use that as a kind of stepping stone, stepping whatever the phrase is, <laughs> to talk about the history of those villages and what happened to them. That was important as well. The food tells a story. We didn't want to divorce the food from the history or the politics. But at the time that the first edition came out, that was the the push was to do just that, right? To sanitize it and to just talk about and have these really beautiful pictures of the food and not talk about history behind them. Yeah, if there's one thing that 
was always present when I was growing up on our dinner table at Stegga. That was the one thing that, you know, we couldn't have dinner without it, right? And I, I remember eating it as a very young kid, right? So it's it's basically like a, a, a spicy salsa, Michael, right? And we'll dip it with pita bread and, and, and olive oil. And I remember being like seven or eight and already eating, you know, chilies. But that's something that Gazans are very well known for, their love for chilies, their love for hot peppers. Do you know where this comes from? In all of Palestine, Gazans are known for being the ones that love spicy food. So where do we get this love from? I think it's funny that you refer to it as a salsa because, because every time I'm trying to describe it to people... Are you saying you it's know, not a salsa? <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's funny because I, I describe it as a salsa-like salad because, it, you know, from depending on where you live in the world, right? You know, but in the sort of Mesoamerican cuisine, the point of reference would be salsa. If somebody were to eat it, they would go, oh, this is salsa, right? But we refer to it as salata ghazawiya, as gazan salad, right? But it's, I, it's, it's part of a genre of dishes or salads, whatever, you know, appetizers um, that I call pounded salads for lack of a better term. So in, in Gaza, the, the most ubiquitous cooking tool or device is the zibdiya, as you know, the, the, the unglazed clay bowl. I can probably get one and show you mortar that everybody uses to pound their salads in and to grind their dill seeds and crush their garlic and also to bake like shrimp stews and things like that. And they come in different sizes and shapes and they're accompanied usually by a lemon wood pestle. And so that is the most essential kitchen device in Gaza, right? And my grandmother used to say that Dagga, the, the Ghazawi salad, is the centerpiece of the, the Gazan table. Everything has to be, you know, so where, but in terms of like where the love of the chili pepper came, that's a really good question that, you know, we were frequently asked that we try to get to the bottom of. Uh, if you ask anybody outside of Gaza what the cuisine is most synonymous with, they will always tell you, oh, they like, they like it hot, right? It's shatta and peppers. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And where um, the stereotype, whereas, yes, and and so that's not. It's like it's, yes, somewhat true. I mean, I remember growing up with my dad always having to have every dish with a side of like three really hot chili peppers, right? Yeah, or like jalapenos or like red chili Whatever. peppers, yes. and they just bite into it in yes, between yes. bites. That's exactly right. So yeah. that's something I was I've never really been able to do. I love things hot, but I can't just eat them raw. <laughs> that's like yeah. nauseating. <laughs> but, you know, so that's not something that they picked up anywhere else in Palestine. And I should say also not in the villages surrounding Gaza. So while it's largely true, it's really an urban, like literally an urban myth, right? It's only in the city where they yeah. consume chili peppers in that way. Not in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, not in the south, and certainly not in the rural or farming interior. Yeah. But as to like where the love of the chili pepper came, I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, who knows? Maybe someone, Gaza was historically a spice trading depot and a stop along, you know, the frankincense route. So like Khan, Khan Yunus and, um, and even in, in Gaza city, there's another Khan where all of the caravans would stop. And during the, the you know, pre-Islamic and the Islamic era, it was well documented that caravans from Arabia would go to Gaza. That's where the grandfather of the prophet, peace be upon him, was buried. So who knows, somewhere, of course, this was before the Colombian exchange when peppers were introduced, but, but it's very possible that at some point somebody came through with a chili pepper and somebody who was ruling maybe said, hey, I really like this. And it just became, right. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? But I mean, <laughs> I imagine it has something to do with that because they, they have like a much milder kind of hot pepper in Arish, neighboring town in Egypt. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's more like a sweet, you know, like Italian pepper than it is a, 
the ones in Gaza aren't, I haven't been able to identify the exact, you know, type. I, I, somebody recently got me seeds and they're growing now in my gardens, which I'm really excited about. But it's, it's its own sort of unique thing. So who knows? Eating a full jalapeno pepper is a very alpha move. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it started, hear me out. That's I think true. it started as an intimidation <laughs> tactic. Because they were like, we're not going to mess with those people. They eat full jalapeno peppers. <laughs> love it. I love it. The, the love of the fit the, the explained, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, and Gaza also, obviously, it's, it's resistance to outside invaders and occupiers is well documented all the way to Alexander the Great, where he talks about like the, these people that were difficult to defeat. I mean, he ultimately did, but it took him longer than any other place, I think. Um, so yeah, who knows, maybe. <laughs> and you touched, you touched on the port. I'd love to just talk about a time before Zionism, right? Gaza was, of course, known as a major port for travelers, merchants, and pilgrims making their way to the Holy Land. It's well known that during the 5th and 6th centuries, the Byzantine era, Gaza had a reputation as a premier producer of vintage and export quality wine, among other products heavily cited by literary and economic historians, Sidonius Apollinarius, for one, who knew it would be a top request of anyone traveling to Palestine. Gazan wine was known for flowery and pricey white wine. He said, as for wines, I have none of Gaza, while wine jars, wine presses, and terraces where the wines were cultivated have been uncovered in archaeological work throughout the Negev, the actual grape seeds have eluded archaeologists until 2015, when hundreds of 1,500-year-old grape seeds were found in the desert, with pottery and coins dating to the 6th and 7th centuries CE, when Gaza was in a period of economic prosperity. Given that Gaza has always been a place where food and drink are valued, how does it feel to be a crucial part of not only preserving the legacy, but keeping Palestinian traditions alive every day? So that's a great question. Yes, the history of Gaza is really well documented in that sense. And it really, I think, would behoove anyone interested in Gaza and in Palestine in general to, to read a book like, you know, we were just discussing Life at the Crossroads, A History of, of Gaza, because it'll really make you rethink, you know, all of your preconceived notions about the area. Even me being from Gaza, I found myself going, wow, really? Because I think we're so accustomed to hearing about it in a certain light and in such a caricatured way. And, you know, all of the different metaphors and descriptive words that come to mind, you know, destitute and forlorn, war-torn, whatever, impoverished. Really, it was a commercial hub just until very recently was known for its furniture trading in the modern era and its textile industry and, and on and on. It was only very recently and in a very deliberate way that it was brought sort of, you know, to its knees like this. But as to your question about what it feels like to contribute to this, I mean, it, it's really an honor for me. It wasn't like I went into this thinking, you know, Maggie and I, oh, this is what we intend to do. It's just that we had a hunch or an intuition about, first of all, how passionate everybody is about food in Gaza, how unique the, the food was and what kind of story it could tell, both about the history and the present. And so in that sense, we just kind of went with, with that hunch and with our intuition on our own and, you know, in our own separate journeys. And then we kind of met individually and we both had the same idea and thought this would be a really fantastic way and a different way to tell the story of Gaza and the, and the story of the Palestinian 
struggle and experience, you know, at large at a time when I think it was people were frustrated and Palestinians ourselves were struggling with how to best narrate our own stories and our own history when it was the same kind of story over and over again. So it just started off like that. But certainly now I've come to recognize over the past 10 years that what an important role it has played and how many other you know, writers and, and books it has inspired. And, and I'm always hearing from people who are either, you know, chefs or, or really famous cookbook authors or whatever, different lines of work that this book inspired me. And I'm like, really? Like, I, you know, I don't feel, you know, it's always imposter syndrome for me. I don't feel like I deserve that honor or belong at that table. It's just something I felt strongly about that I really wanted to do that I felt had to be written in some way. And I'm really, really, you know, blessed and privileged to have had the opportunity to write it, continue to be able to use it as a platform to speak about Gaza, especially at times of immediate crisis like what we've just seen. I gotta say, I haven't made makluba yet, but the technique of flipping it over has changed the way that I bake banana bread. <laughs> okay, that's the first time I've ever heard banana bread at makluba, you know, <laughs> said in the same sentence. <laughs> I used to have so much trouble getting the banana bread out. I love it. Right? But I saw the McLuba technique. Now I'm banging on the top of the can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I never grew up knowing how to do all these things. And I have to say, I, I frequently cite this in my bio that flipping over a matluba perfectly still really excites me because I'm like, it worked, it worked, you know? And whereas people who are sort of seasoned experts were like, of course it worked. Like, this is how you do it. And I'm like, no, but I, you don't understand, you know, for forever. Okay. I, yeah, there was a, there's a, there was a really specific technique that I, I couldn't figure out. And then it was only when I observed a woman in a women's cooperative in Gaza making it that I was like, that's it, you know? They press the rice down really hard before they add the, the water or the broth, I guess. And then they let it rest for 20 minutes when it's done. And then they flip it. And like you said, they bang on the, on the back of it. But when you press the rice down, it comes out nice and compact versus before it was all kind of a loose mess that would just collapse when I flipped it over. So our total food geek. I did not know that. I did <laughs> yeah. not know that. You see? you see? Yeah, I'm not the only one, you know? I think there's just this... This idea that I think people just assume you ha you're born and you know these things. As a no. Person, especially for those of us who grew up in diaspora or in families that don't necessarily cook or aren't always in the kitchen. My parents certainly weren't. Yeah, that's not inherited or common knowledge at all. So, <laughs> so every time I flip over a matluba in my adult life, I profusely sweat because of what like I'm like is it gonna work is it not gonna work is it gonna go everywhere my guests are waiting it's, it's always like drama yeah. yes, um, yes. but you know I think you bring up a good point which is that the experience in exile is different I mean so many of our parents yeah. both of them had to work and right. they weren't necessarily cooking and if they were they weren't necessarily cooking Palestinian food because they were just trying to get something on the table quickly and Palestinian food takes a long time to cook. I mean, these are things that take all day. And yeah, you can meal prep it a little bit. I also really appreciate Judy Kala's books. She's a dear friend of mine because she has really simplified Palestinian yes. cuisine. All of her recipes don't take very long to make. So, and, and, and she always refers to them as being sort of like a base recipe, which you can elaborate on. And so I work a lot with her uh, cookbooks as well. One thing I want to go back to we were talking about earlier, actually. It's, it's this notion that Gaza has so many different cuisines, even within Gaza, even though Gaza is this small place, right? And, and it's so densely populated. But 
what one family is eating in a certain place in Gaza may not be what another family is eating just a few kilometers away. When I talked to my brother-in-law about the famous pickled watermelon rind salad that's in your book, he's from, he grew up in, in Gaza, right? He came to the U.S. when he was 18. And he goes, that, that thing? He's like, only a few families eat that. And they're not, you know, we don't eat that. That's, that's so-and-so family that eats that. And I started laughing because I thought, wow, like, our cuisine really is just a collection of what a few and a bunch of families are eating at any given moment, right? That's what makes up the whole thing. Absolutely. And I ran into this over and over again. In fact, after I documented that recipe, in the first edition of the book, uh, I had heard about it, but I hadn't actually made it. And it was in the very last minute I wanted to include it, but I wasn't sure exactly how it's made. I got all this secondhand knowledge. And then a cousin of mine in California, whose father from my mother's side of the family, Al-Farra family, came to California pretty early in the you know 1960s, I want to say. She read about it or heard me talk about it and was like, you know, my dad, Al-Irhamo, used to always say in Khanyunis in southern Gaza, when in the summers he would make this. And so I was like, really? And I was like desperate. Of course, he had died, but I was desperate for more information. And I asked the mother and I asked, you know, extended relatives. But it was only when I went back to Gaza to film with Anthony Bourdain that, and then I guess they had an a certain set agenda. They wanted to go and film in the tunnels and it didn't work out. So I was like, well, you know, there is this really interesting recipe that I've been wanting to see. Maybe I could hook you up with someone who can do it. And, and so that's how that happened. And we went and we asked one of these, you know, sort of clan type families to, if they could make it for us. And it is really a whole clan affair. It took the entire day and the entire clan to make it. But I just thought it was really interesting and something that you don't associate with Gaza. And a lot of these recipes, not that, but some of them that we document are either in disuse or we put in there for historic interest or whatever, but they tell part of that greater story, you know? I think one of the amazing things too is that you were able to do something that many of us Palestinians, especially in exile, are not able to do. And that is get our elders to sit down and tell us what the recipe is. Yeah. Oh, they weren't, trust me, it wasn't, that wasn't the technique we used because they would never just tell you very infrequently. We, we would have to cook with them or have them cook for us or something like that. And we would, or together, I would say, and we would observe and then, and then wait a minute and have them repeat. Cause I was like, well, what did you just put in there? Oh, just a spice. Well, what kind of spice? Oh, whatever you want. <laughs> Like, no, no, <laughs> that's not how it works, you know? <laughs> you know? So, um, so that was a bit challenging, but we always found that when you cook with someone rather than have them cook for you or just orally convey what it is that you want to learn, you're, you're going to get a much richer, uh, you know, a bounty of information and a much more accurate one and, and many more interesting stories and anecdotes. I did here in Maryland, I, for one section on diaspora, I had one man who was in his 80s make something for me in Edgewater, Maryland. He was from Gaza. Uh, so that was probably the most challenging because he, you know, he wasn't up for cooking, but finally he, but he's a really good cook. And finally I got him on a day where he was, he said, okay. And, you know, we went over there and he showed us how to make a few things and picked some hummuses from his garden, some sorrel, and told us about the way that he makes stuffed red carrots with a, with a power drill. And we got some really cool stories, you know, from him. So yeah, I've I've tried to call my grandmother and just Tata, please just tell me how yeah, do you yeah. make your msachan? <laughs> just give go give me the steps. It's such an easy recipe. Tata, please tell me how do you make your mulukhiya? I just want to just like yeah, I yeah, need yeah. to write this yeah. down. And yeah. it's impossible. It's actually no, impossible. It is. 
In fact, my, my grandmother, I think it's funny that you referred to her as, as Teta because I did too. Now, yeah. was she from Gaza or was she, she from Tata Gaza? Tata Hanna. She's from, yeah. So all four of my grandparents were born in Gaza. My okay. uh, Tata, who I'm speaking about, her mom is from Yaffa. Okay. Okay. So my grandmother, Hamha, on my mother's side, she was born and raised in Palestine and grew up in Gaza. But her, uh, her mother was a Syrian Kurd from Damascus and her father was Sherkasi. And she never considered herself Palestinian. But she, but I referred to her as Teta. I don't know if it was the Syrian influence because her mother was Syrian. But my husband always found that really funny. They're from the north of Palestine, and they they just say you know Siti. Yeah. They so we say so you say Teta, but I say Tata. Like yeah, or Tata. Yeah. My, yeah. my father says Tata, but that was always considered very like sort of uppity or Nawaim. Really. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always get made fun of when I go visit his family because of the way we talk, you know. But we don't talk in a very sort of brute, you know, like hick Ghazawi dialect, right? Which is, you know, but <laughs> but my father's side does. But but I want to say there's a lot of Palestinians in Gaza from Yaffa because they would go work there sometimes for the day, including my grandfather and his his, and then they would come back. And my mother always gave an anecdote of how the the men would come back from Yaffa. And they would have in their tarbush, in their fez, you might call a little jasmine flower. And they would go like this at the end of the day and present it to their wife. You know, my mother would say only the men from Yaffa would do that. Like never the men from Gaza. You know? so, That's so funny. <laughs> but you know anyway, what? yeah. sorry, total digression. Go ahead. No, um, actually, it just in terms of like little anecdotes about things that people do yeah. from Gaza or Yaffa, my, my Sido, who by the way, I call Sido, I don't call Jiddo. Yes. Same, same. So uh, my, I call my father's father Sido and I called my mother's father Jiddo. So I don't know yeah. how those things. I don't know where that comes from or how it works either. But my Sido, so these are my, my mom's parents who I'm speaking about. He always, he has this tradition of bringing a crate of oranges every week for my grandmother. And it's okay. it's because That's her amazing. mother is from Yaffa or whatever. I don't know. I, it's just this, this tradition that he got into, you know, 50, 60 years ago and every week for many, many years now, he's been bringing my grandmother crates of oranges. And, you know, it gets to the point where like the oranges build up and she's like, we haven't eaten last week's oranges, you know, but that's what he does for her. Because Yaffa was known for its oranges and it yeah. still continues to be known for its oranges. Right. That's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful anecdote. But, but no, I mean, my grandmother was the same. I could never get her to, I mean, and again, she actually, it was a step further for her. If I, came and asked her how to make something, especially as she got older, she would actually get visibly upset. Like she would say, yes. why, why are you coming to ask me about food? Yes. Is that all you think I'm good for? You know, she, but you know, she was very learned and she knew six or seven languages and, and she was a school teacher and a headmistress in the, in the schools, in the Ornawa schools in Southern Gaza. And so she considered it sort of an affront to her position and her place and her you know, feminism to, for me to come and ask her how to cook something, you know? So, <laughs> so interesting for my grandmother was just like, it's just so easy. You should already know. <laughs> like, it's so yeah, obvious. <laughs> it's also a reminder of your mortality, right? You're trying to write down the recipe because yeah. you know that you have a finite amount of time left. That's true. That's a really good point that probably I hadn't thought of at the time that she probably wanted me to listen to her recite poetry or the things that she, you know, not <laughs> learn how to yes. cook. So, you know, so that's, a, that is a really good point. 
can't help but, even though she hated cooking, I can't help but remember her every time she would task me with the laborious task of grinding the dill seeds in the zibdia. And, and then she would say, don't grind like a wimp, like put some muscle into it. You know, so every time I grind those dill seeds, I still remember her. <laughs> so I'm here with Gazan Girl and Gaza Mom. And I would be remiss if I did not ask you this question. Layla, are you pro or anti Bamya? <laughs> oh, man. Totally oh. pro. My pro favorite, Bamya. favorite vegetable in the entire world. You know, I, yes. Bamia Gate Part Two. Let's go. <laughs> so Why this this issue has caused quite a controversy on our on our show. Uh, Amir Zahar came on uh, episode three, and he was very pro Bamia as well. I happen to be of the anti-Bamia camp. Because you haven't had it right. That's why. This is what they always say. (laughs) (laughs) They always say the same thing. I tell you. I tell you. Well, continue. It's slimy. It's leathery. It's it's hairy. Do not bring back Bamia slander. (laughs) It's because you haven't had it. I should preface this by saying... I was an incredibly picky eater as a child. I was anemic and malnourished and, and tiny. I, I hated food. I had no appetite for food. And it wasn't until my mother sort of just said, you know what, just make what you, know, what you want. And when I began to experience the textures and the flavors and try different things that I, that I suddenly developed a passion for food. But I do want to say I stand firm by my point. You have not had it prepared correctly because Bamia, if you're making it, of course, in a stew form, it should not be slimy or hairy or thorny or whatever. You, you know, it's picked young and it's actually sauteed, almost blistered. My mother would blister it so that it was kind of charred so that all the sliminess and any of those little, the hairiness that you're talking about would disappear. And, uh, and all, she's not convinced. And all left <laughs> I prefer my, my food without hair that I have to blister on. But also it doesn't have <laughs> hair on it. You're probably eating a variety. That's what I'm talking about. There's different varieties of, yeah. there's, there's cow horn okra, which is more hairy or fuzzy or whatever. And then there's, there's like Clemson okra and there's other varieties, Middle Eastern types that are picked small and are thornless. That's what they're called. They're thornless okra. So you probably haven't had the thornless okra, I want to say, but for when it does get a little bit too big to cook into stew, one of the things that we learned and we write about in the book is bamya wadas, which is this dish made in the rural parts of Gaza and greater Gaza, especially popular in the villages, where they would actually chop it down and then saute it with onions and then with red lentils and finish it off with a t'laya of garlic and basil. And it is absolutely, like, if you dislike okra, you, you know, you'll be won over by this dish, trust me. I mean, I made it last year, and I, I sautéed the basil enough that it got nice and crispy, and I added some chilies in there as well. So, I'm sorry, my, my daughter's in the background here again, I hope. <laughs> Bayan. Anyway, do you need me to repeat all that, or was that okay? It's okay. It, it yeah. adds authenticity. <laughs> Yes, yes. But no, if you were to ask me what's your favorite vegetable, it would be bamia followed by followed by eggplant. So Palestinians are so polite because the response you haven't had it done right is basically just you don't know how to cook, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've never well, cooked yeah. it. I've never cooked it. I've only <laughs> eaten it prepared by others, you know, at Azuma. My husband always says I'm not polite at all. I have no filter. What's he always looks at me when we're having like 
certain types of people that he needs to and he goes please put your filter on today <laughs> but uh no i do stand by my point that it needs to be there's a technique to cooking okra i i always yeah. thought it very strange when i came to the us and i saw because i grew i lived in the south for a long time and so okra was really popular there north carolina and so forth but they just chop it and they put it in gumbos and stews and it gets really slimy and and the big seeds the round seeds kind of you know get stuck in your teeth and i found that very gross you know to put it mildly so i i see your point but we would never do that in the middle east not just in palestine there's a long history of cooking okra you know in the ottoman empire and, and dating back before that and it's always cooked in the same way in the same technique it's picked small when it's cooked into a stew so it doesn't get slimy you you cut the cap off in a conical way so that the slime doesn't ooze out the mucilage as it were and you saute it in the beginning before you stew it so that it gets blistered and somewhat charred and that gets rid of any kind of you know fuzz or thorns on it it's amazing sounds good to me sounds, sounds pretty good <laughs> thank you for that very detailed description of how to properly prepare bamya so uh, maybe some of the anti-bamya uh people <laughs> oh, that it. listen yeah. to us just, will be just one uh, of <laughs> Blistered banya, blistered okra is my favorite. You know, just even with olive oil and garlic and tomatoes, yeah. there's a vegetarian version of it that we eat as well. Yeah. Let's get into a little bit of the daily reality in Gaza. For people on the ground in Gaza, can you talk about how relatively recent in its thousands of year long history, but the recent experience of occupation and now the 15 year long siege has affected our ability to plant our food, to grow our food, and to eat our food and cook and eat our food. This is a part of a larger effort of greenwashing as well, right? Some research has been done on the JNF, which uncovers the colonial greenwashing role of that organization, notably the book Greenwashing Apartheid, the Jewish National Fund's Environmental Cover-Up. And we've often talked on the podcast about how the JNF planted over many destroyed Palestinian villages. With Layla here and the connection between the land and the food we eat, we wanted to pay special attention to the issue of greenwashing and the seizure of Palestinian farmland. Those observations are spot on, Michael. I haven't read that book. Sounds really interesting. So in the case of, of Gaza specifically, obviously, like other uh, Palestinians in 1948, those that ended up in Gaza were displaced from their homes and from their livelihoods and from their, many of them from their farming lifestyles. A lot of the people we spoke with and interviewed for the book uh, talked to us about how they would farm six, seven hours per day, so many dunams of their farmland and about the seasonality and about how they would eat whatever the land gave them, a lot of root vegetables and, uh, and wild greens and things like that, and how they would eat, for example, meat on rare occasion, on for celebratory occasions. The story of the Palestinian struggle in large part has been that of constant violent displacement and erasure and from their lands and from their farms and livelihoods. And that is the case for a lot of Palestinians in Gaza. It was the case in 1948 when they were violently displaced from their way of life. And a lot of the Palestinians we spoke to for the book talked about how they were accustomed to farming in a certain way and eating in a certain way. And then they found themselves you know, at the mercy of aid organizations that were supposed to be delivering temporary emergency food handouts that ended up not being temporary and ended up drastically changing the diet and the way they cooked. And so frika and burgol and the seasonality of wheat and the wheat harvest, those things were no longer accessible, olive oil, 
the way they once were to them. And instead it was sunflower oil and white sugar and white flour. And this began, you know, with the UN and then the World Food Program and so on. But there was still a sort of a somewhat of a accessibility to these other food items through the years because there wasn't a really strict kind of sanctioning or blockade on Gaza. So people would sometimes trade in their food vouchers or rations, or they were able to afford to purchase these things, even if they weren't able any longer to grow them. They could buy olive oil or were gifted it or so on. But what we've seen happen in the past 10 years, or I guess, you know, more than 10 years by now, because I always like to say that, you know, the sanctions blockade really started in 2005, the closure, at least, of Gaza with a disengagement, not after the elections. And then it just became more and more stringent and and punitive over time. We've seen a complete transformation in terms of how people eat and what they're able to afford and, and cook with and access, where that was never the case before. And again, this was something deliberate. It's deliberately transformed the very society, right? And so I noticed, for example, that during the last time I visited, and this wasn't the case when we first went 10 years ago, that people were only able to purchase and cook with fish maybe once every six months, right? Think about how tragic that is, that Gaza is right on the sea, but its own inhabitants can no longer cook on a regular basis or consume fish. And when they do, by the way, it's usually frozen, really vile stuff that's brought in from, I think, Thailand or somewhere, brought in by who knows whom and who knows how, right? And, and on rare occasion, farmed freshwater fish that a few entrepreneuring families were able to harvest in Gaza. But even that is tragic in and of itself. Why would you need to eat farmed fish if you live on the on a coastal territory? This to me was really, I mean, just jaw dropping because that wasn't the case 10 years ago. Most of the population is now food insecure. Not all, right? But 75 to 80% are food insecure. And obviously all Palestinians lack food sovereignty. That's a different topic. But food insecure in the sense that they also don't consume animal protein more than once a week, if then. So they're only maybe on Fridays. Most families I spoke with can scrape together enough to get a little bit of ground beef to make mashi, for example, or matluba, all the things that we're, we've been talking about. But their meals on a daily basis have now become an assortment of fried sautéed vegetables that grow locally, kusa, you know, potatoes, eggplant, and etc., maybe falafel, food, hummus in the morning, but that's about it. So there isn't this diversity in the diet that there once was, certainly not the types of grains that were once utilized. And to be able to cook with olive oil is almost unthinkable. I mean, almost every household I visited didn't have olive oil. They would purchase that and tina in a single unit quantities if they needed it for a specific dish. So for 25 cents or whatever, one shekel, they would go and say, we need a little bit to drizzle on top of the dish. So that was the most tragic and telling aspect, I think. And again, it's it's not, I'm not reducing the impact of the blockade to food, but this is the tragedy that we're having at once to have to address this, the very real impact on people's diets and access to food. And on the other, the fact that it's really about restricting people's freedoms to farm and to fish and to learn and to live and to, to move you know, in one breath, we're having to address both of these things. But we know that one detracts from the other. And this is, this is intentional, of course. We had Miko Pellet on the podcast, and 
He told us about how there was an account that he wrote about in his book where Israeli soldiers would tell the Gazan fishermen to jump in the water and count to 100 and then keep counting to 100 until they drowned, which was horrifying because we know already that they're shooting Gaza fishermen off the, off the shore uh, of Gaza and that there are so many fishermen that are killed each year or whose boats are destroyed because the Navy just sits there and... You know, that's what they do. They shoot our fishermen. That's why we don't have fish. It's part, that's part of the reason why. I imagine part of it is, is, is a supply issue, but I, I guess also part of it is that some people simply can't afford it because the siege has economically devastated Gaza in the way that it has. We always cite to the figure that the UN provided this year. The cost of the siege was almost $17 billion in economic losses for Gaza, $16.7 billion in economic losses since the siege began. And that's the UN figure, right? So Gaza would be more prosperous than the occupation if not for the siege. Mm -hmm. That's why they keep their boot on Gaza's neck so that they don't flourish, so that they cannot be shown as proof of concept that Palestinians should and would determine their own destiny. That's an excellent point. In fact, three of the stated tenants of the blockade that were revealed pretty early on by a group of Israeli occupation force spokespeople that were sent around to give presentations to try to kind of justify Sharifa policy, they talked about those three tenants of the blockade being no development, no prosperity, and no humanitarian crisis, meaning exactly what you said. We always want to keep Gaza teetering on the brink of collapse, right, with an intravenous drip of relief so that people can never cry foul and say, oh my gosh, there's a humanitarian crisis. So just allowing in enough things so that people can survive but never thrive, prosper, develop, or rebuild. He said he was going to put them on a diet, like some weirdo nutritionist out of a eugenics book. Yes, this was Dove Weisglass, the infamous Dove Weisglass, former advisor to then Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who famously said that the idea is to put Palestinians on a diet in Gaza, but not let them starve to death, right? Which is exactly what I was talking about, this whole policy of intervenous strip of relief. And in fact, in line with that, there was a time where they, and I think still, they were making sure to allow in just enough produce, products, whatever, imports, to meet a certain caloric count so that they could then say, look, we're, nobody's dying of hunger. And actually, to quote the former head of the UN in Gaza at the time, he told me, look, nobody's starving, he said, but everybody's hungry. And again, this is not to detract from the greater harm that this blockade is causing, which is a blockade on people's freedoms. But th this is, in fact, a very real impact. And to speak to the point about fishing, you know, we have to remember and let it be restated that even though in the disengagement, Israel dismantled its settlements and military infrastructure. It relocated its settlements and settlers, 30,000 of them, to the West Bank, restructured its effective occupation of Gaza, and retained control over its airspace, its sea space, its borders, its taxation system, and its population registry. So fishermen can only fish anywhere between three to eight on a good day nautical miles into sea and the deep sea channel off of Gaza's coast is at nine nautical miles where you will begin to see the larger sea bream and sea basses and things like that. 
So what ends up happening is you're, you know, ecologically, it's devastating. You're, you're calling smaller catches of fish and threatening future populations and only able to reel in very small types of fish in, in small quantities. And that, of course, reduces the supply, as you were saying, and greatly increases the, the, the cost. And so whatever is being caught is usually sold to restaurants and so on and not consumed by the local population. And, and all of this is, is telling a larger story, of course, of how Palestinians over the past 70 years have violently been displaced, ethnically cleansed from their lands and fragmented and separated from one another and from their own lands, right? Those on the outside in diaspora, as well as those on the inside from one another, from their lands, from the things they cherish and hold dear from their culture, so that many Palestinians probably have never tasted what real, real za'atar um, tastes like. Many Palestinians can, can no longer consume the fish that swims off their own coasts. Or they've only had slimy bamya. <laughs> That's actually crazy, Leila, that you say that, because now I'm remembering there was a video on YouTube about Palestinian grandmothers try Trader Joe's Zatar. Yeah, I think it was like Levantine. I don't think or it was something. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah, were yeah. all like, ew, yuck, what is this? This yeah, isn't yeah, real yeah. Zatar, you know? And, it, right, and right. yeah, it's funny, but it's also in a way sad because what it's yeah. it's what it's illustrating is that that disconnect between the, the generation in exile and then the former generations that have a memory of the food of the land. That's exactly right. And it's not something we speak about enough. I think it's just, I think for, for a lot of people, they just don't know. And it's just assumed that, well, you can visit at least, right? Or you can, but I think it's lost a lot of people that many of us can't in fact visit, right? We're were physically forcibly either removed or denied or prevented from visiting. Or if we can, then some member of our family can't visit with us because they lack family unification or Palestinian ID cards or whatever the case may be, right? Or you can go to one territory, but not the other and on and on. And so this is very difficult. It's a very difficult concept, I think, to grasp for a lot of people, but really gets at the root and the heart of the sort of divide and conquer and control the land but not the people tactic of the Israeli colonial regime. So Leila, obviously we, we, we just witnessed a very brutal military assault on Gaza, which began towards the end of Ramadan this year, which is, to be honest, still somewhat ongoing. I mean, the, the new prime minister, <laughs> Naftali Bennett, shelled Gaza a day or two into his new term. And this is a sort of thing where a few bombs here, a few shells here, you know, we may not even hear about it because it's not the same intensity as it is when it's really bad, right? So I just want to ask you, I mean, how, how is your family doing? What it was, you know, what was it like for you to be separated from them and, and to watch this happen on TV? Can you give us just an idea of what it was like? Yeah, I mean, we were really lucky to have been able to exactly one year ago, sort of at the height of COVID, to evacuate my mother and father from Gaza, who had lived through all of the previous, or I, I want to say two of the three of the last previous assaults on Gaza. But my uncles were there and my uh, cousins and extended family and so on. So it was, it's, again, it's like you're seeing the same real play over and over again, and different versions of the same nightmare. And they certainly seem to have a better handle on it, I think, than, than we have. Um, when I left Gaza in 2007 with my son, it was before the time when Israel began to use the devastating amounts of firepower that we then saw. And that was primarily because up until 2005, there were settlers 
in Gaza, and they, it would have been unthinkable for them. So they, right when the settlers left, they, the Israeli army began to use things like artillery fire and sonic booms, which I was in Gaza to have experienced those. And then shortly thereafter, they began to, you know, cast lead. And the sad reality is my uncle was like, this is our destiny. We're willing to accept it, you know. And I thought, you know, we should feel sorry really for ourselves and for everybody who is not doing enough to, to in whatever capacity we can, be it through advocacy or speaking out or amplifying voices, not for them in that way. And really it's they resent this sort of victim mentality very much and they kind of sort of collectively i want to say roll their eyes when people speak about them in that way either i always say gaza is is considered both uniquely you know victim and perpetrator at the same time depending on who you're you're talking to and it really strips i think palestinians there of their humanity to speak about them those polarities but of course, for us, it was horrible. We were celebrating Eid and my you know, kids were making kaik and I was posting about this on Instagram, my girls, as we were watching live coverage of what was going on because this time around, most of the damage and most of the bombing was happening around our home in the city, in the center of the city, not on the periphery, which was the case before. And they were trying to hit the commercial hub of the strip where all the banks are and the different centers, entrepreneurial centers and businesses and things like that. So that was the most tragic part is a lot of the places I had visited just a year ago, you know, the Gaza's only 3D printing facility and several of the main doctors at Shifa Hospital and on and on, all those things were destroyed. Sad reality is as long as Israel isn't held accountable to their whole mowing the lawn in Gaza policy of there's nothing else we can do but ma maintenance, right, of Gaza. This will continue to happen every few years. And the question becomes then at what point will, you know, and I don't think change will come from obviously governments or world leaders, but at what point will people finally say like enough is enough, this cannot continue? I don't know. I'm always scratching my head wondering, you know, will there be an end to this? Will the blockade finally end? Not just a seizing of the fire, but rather a seizing of the blockade and the occupation and the settler colonialism. Is that, you know, in the words of a BBC host, is that unrealistic of us to ask? A lot of people were confused at the targets of the latest assault on Gaza, but it actually speaks to what we were talking about earlier. They targeted commercial facilities, yeah. places of economic growth, and that is because despite the blockade, people of Gaza have been prospering as best they can. And the occupation had to come in and destroy the progress. That's exactly right. And that was the analysis observations of a lot of my friends in Gaza at the time, including Hamad Abu Matar, who's 3D printing facility was destroyed. He said they were targeting what they viewed as the, the visible symbols of progress and development, all the things I said in the beginning that they, the very tenants that they had said they were trying to prevent, right? Development, uh, prosperity. It was definitely intentional. It was no accident that they were hitting these things, that they destroyed Wihda uh, streets and all the streets leading to the various ministries, institutions, economic centers of growth and, and so on. I think people have this mistaken notion. They can be forgiven for thinking so because of the very sort of... Uh, you know, caricature depiction of Gaza in the media that Gaza is just this kind of bombed out, grim, destitute place. And while that is certainly part of the story, the other part is that, as you were saying, Gaza is full of innovators and entrepreneurs. It always has been historically, and that ha really hasn't changed. I mean, we talked about, you know, Gaza through the ages and Gaza in the modern day really is, is no different. And like you were saying, given the resources 
and the, the removal of all these restrictions, it would really thrive, I think. I was watching a video of fishermen, actually, in Gaza, who had developed, or not even fishermen, but I think recreational fishermen and photographers, scuba divers, who had created their own fishing spears. Because they can't fish very far into sea, they're having to dive deep down to to catch the larger fish. And they developed these like homemade kind of spearfishing guns to use, which I thought was kind of cool. The people of Gaza are always impressing me with their ingenuity. There was recently a engineer who was involved in the Mars landing that was yeah. from Palestine. And he said it's easier to get to Mars than it is Gaza. That's exactly right. In fact, that reminds me of a comment somebody made. A lot of my work in the earlier you know, part of my career was spent documenting Rafah crossing and the trials and the difficulties of going in and out of Palestine generally in Gaza more specifically. And I remember there was this one time where this man was pushing his trolley because everything had to be done by hand. There was no automation across one part of the, the land crossing. And this Egyptian guard was like, hey, you, like, where do you think you're going? You know, stop right there. And he was like, where the hell do you think I'm going? Jerusalem? You know, so, I mean, it's true. We all sort of laugh, but it's true. It was unthinkable that he could get to Jerusalem. You know, Mars is closer, to, I think, to a lot of Palestinians than Jerusalem, sadly. I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> what do you think, Michael? I mean, I usually like to end on something happy, but... <laughs> I know, I was going to say. On the point of resilience and ingenuity... You know, my co-author and I were talking about this and how frequently the word resilience is used in the same breath as Gaza, right? And we were talking about how people also have to be careful, especially, you know, allies and advocates about doing that because then resilience becomes the goal, right? Not just a, a coping mechanism or I think really anybody put in such a situation, maybe some more than others for sure, would have no choice but to be resilient or adapt. But talking about Gaza in terms of resilience then reduces the conversation to resilience rather than rights, right? And so the ultimate goal being rights and not just resilience, but I just kind of wanted to put that out there, I think. <laughs> That's a great point to make, and I thank you for making it. I think we should also hold space for the fact that not everybody in Gaza is resilient, right? There are some That's people. Exactly right. yes. There are some people who are sensitive and cannot deal well with the occupation. Not everyone is this ideal revolutionary that we like to paint when we're talking about Palestinians. Some Palestinians just need to be held. You can't paint this broad picture of all Palestinians. Just like every community, there's variety. That's true. And I was just had this mental image of you giving Palestine a collective hug. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I actually, I want to quote Future, who is a Black Lives Matter activist. They said, I've seen Palestinian homes be demolished and I want every Palestinian to know they have a home within me. I love it. Yeah. And it reminds me of a tweet I read during the recent assaults on Gaza where, you know, a mother was trying to comfort her child and the child was saying, but I'm not brave. Like, I'm not courageous. I'm, I'm not brave. You know, aren't you upset with me? And it broke my heart because this is the expectation that everyone has to be brave and everyone has to put on a brave face. But in the end of the day, they're human beings, right? And, and they, they love and they mourn and they get sad and angry and, and that's okay. But it's just to have to endure so much for such a long time in really in the most impossible circumstances in the, in the most vile and deliberative ways it is an impossible herculean task i think i always wonder about that it's just it's suffocating to even think about i just remember the few years i was there and how you know mentally oppressive it felt and so i can't even imagine 
what it's like now, you know, and you need to find those coping mechanisms to be able to survive. What's your okay. absolute all time favorite Gazan dish to prepare? And don't say Bamiya because that's that's general <laughs> Palestine. No, <laughs> no, I mean I Gazan, in- like specific to right. Gaza. Yeah. That's such a tough one because I'm always discovering new dishes or I'm tasting dishes that I've written about maybe for the second time and and falling in love with them all over again. So I can't say I'm somebody who will always go back to a single dish, you know, new flavors and textures and 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 new environments or you know, contexts in which I might have a dish for the second or third time excite me. I will say sorry to to disappoint you but Bamiya Adas, you know. <laughs> Bamiya Gate. <laughs> I so I don't know I, this Bamiya Adas dish. Okay, I really don't okay. know it. And and so, I will it's 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 in the book, right? It is in the book and you know, I will say if you hear about it, you might think it doesn't sound very appealing. A lot of the dishes we write about and in fact, inform the cuisine are for lack of a better word, my Maggie always says they're kind of mush or but yeah. for lack of, meaning like they're things that are stewed together and poured into bowls and yeah. um there isn't, it's, it's a lot of it is peasant cuisine and farm cuisine. And, and the very, the more sophisticated dishes tend to be those that derived from Yaffa, from refugees that came from Yaffa. They were finely spiced and, and properly plated and all of this. But, but the rest of Gaza, especially the larger part of the population that originated from the agricultural interior, it was very seasonal, very simple ingredients, but with like real pops of flavor. But I mean, I personally love that. That's kind of my style of, of eating. So it depends. It's either going to be the seafood, if you ask me for my favorites, the one that I grew up with, which is the the roasted stuffed crabs, my absolute favorite, you know, brings back childhood memories. And it's something that has the quintessential flavors of Gaza, the garlic, the, the chili, the dill, the cumin, all in one. So that's one of my favorites. And the other one on the other end of the spectrum is is more the sort of peasant cuisine is the banyan and adas, which again, you hear about it and you go, you know, lentils, okra, eh. But I had a chance to make it in my garden for, you know, a benefit for Grow Palestine last year. And I was literally had picked the okra and, and cooked it right there on a little camping stove. Really super simple, sauteed onions and, and really good quality olive oil until they got nice and deeply caramelized and sweet. And then chopped the okra, the large okra, and blistered it until it got nice and charred. And then added the red lentils in the water, let that all cook down until it was nice and soft. And, you know, in Gaza, they would mix this with sort of a rudimentary whisk called a mufrak. So it's a it's a piece of wood with little spikes. It looks like a kind of medieval, you know, torture device or something. And you go like this until everything is kind of nice and mixed together. And then you just fry again in olive oil, some mashed garlic and basil leaves. And I added some whole little chilies in there, red chilies. And you just finish this too off with that. And that's really, to me, what makes... The dish. In fact, we spoke to a woman in Gaza who said that's what makes the dish speak, right? And just a bite of that, just so many different flavors and and so warm, I think, and nourishing and and simple at the same time. So that's that's one of my favorites, I would say. Do you um, eat it with bread? Is it with? Is you it you like would tamis? eat it with. Yes, that's exactly right. You would you would eat it tamis. But and I'll maybe leave with one more anecdote, which is. We talked to someone in Gaza. I had met him during one of the times I was stuck by the border of Rafah for three weeks with my young son. And I, and I met this guy, Yusuf Abu Safiya, who was at the time a minister of the environment. And I saw him picking up firewood. We were both renting small places in Arish next to the Rafah crossing on the Egyptian side. And it was kind of chilly and 
and we struck it up and he's a great conversationalist. And later on, I visited him in his house in Gaza and he talked to me at length about you know, his journey as a refugee from the village of Hamama and the kinds of things they would eat. And he showed me his prized zibdiya that he had kept for 27 years and considered it a member of the family. And he spoke very fondly about it and spoke to me in excruciating detail about the precise technique that was required to mash garlic. We had a salad in the book that we named after him called Salatat Abu Safiya, which is very similar to the Gazan salad of Degga with the mashed garlic and the tomatoes and the chili peppers. But the way he described it to me was as refugees, we just incorporated whatever we had available to us. If it was whatever herbs, it could have been parsley, maybe not dill, it could have been basil. And then we would add in some tina in the end. That was the difference, right? You know, we named it Salatat Abu Safiya. And last year I got a message from his daughter in New Zealand who said that she had read what I wrote about him and she hadn't been able to see him for 10 years because of the blockade and the restrictions on travel and Palestinians on both sides. And he had passed away from COVID, which was even more tragic. And that it meant so much to her that we had this lasting memory of him in the book and this tribute to him. So that really meant a lot to me, I think, to hear that from her and that she said to me every time she now makes the salad, she thinks of her father. Leila, thank you so much for coming on the Palestine pod. We so appreciate your time, your stories, your wisdom everything. Uh, I will be trying some of these recipes uh, myself with the help of Lara, who's going (laughs) to coach me through how to do them. Yeah, premium content. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to another episode. You can find all of our sources available at www.palestinepod.com. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram at thepalestinepod. And you can reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day. So maybe just to conclude, Leila, why don't you tell us what your upcoming projects are? What are you working on? Working on getting a full night's sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll skip that.